Sometimes we start with dessert. And the last chapter of 1 Thessalonians is that. The apostle says, Now as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like a labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you, have charge over you in the Lord, literally stand in front, and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit, do not do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, he also will bring it to pass. Let's take a moment for silent prayer as we open the word of God to Isaiah chapter 23 tonight with encouragement concerning God's plan for us and insight that he'll give us concerning his plan for the ages. Let's pray. Father, we come tonight to you with gratitude and with a boast. We are grateful for our so great salvation, for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and our boast is only in him. Father, we have nothing to boast about before God being wretched, broken sinners with such limited insight and such craven motivations because of our sinfulness. Yet you, the perfect, holy, righteous, loving God, have seen fit from eternity past to make us for yourself, call us to yourself, to save us by the work of your Son on the cross, to mark us out for eternity, to rule with him. And Father, we marvel at our wonderful destiny, even as we, uh, we, we grieve often in the present. Now today, Father, we are rejoicing because we have uh, your word before us and we want to know you on your terms. We open our hearts as we open your word. Strengthen us to know you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 23 tonight, the oracle concerning Tyre. The oracle concerning Tyre and uh, a challenge. Where, where, where is Tyre? Chapter 23 is the last of the many oracles, the, three, the two sets of five, the ten words God has for the nations around uh, Israel. 
and, uh, and Israel and Judah. He, he has words for his people and for the other nations. And it's two cycles of five, and this is the fifth of the second cycle, the last one. And we've heard about Tyre already, but we'll hear about it again. And uh, just to put it on the map, what is Tyre? Where are we talking about? Well, this is a picture of the biblical world, a lot of, a lot of it in the Old Testament anyway. This is the big water, the Mediterranean Sea. This is the uh, Dead Sea. This is the Sea of Galilee, and the river between them is the River Jordan. That's right, the River Jordan between the Galilee and the Dead Sea. And this is the full extent of the biblical world in so much of what we read. It's the land of Israel, and it seems like a really small place when you compare it to um, the rest of Scripture, or the rest of the world, I should say. This is the area in which Jesus never left. It's a very small part of the planet, and remember uh, the scale here. Um, an inch is 100 miles, uh, not much more than 100 miles in, in, that, in his travels. But here is Tyre, here on the coast, right uh, close to uh, Jerusalem down here. Tyre is up north in the place uh, called Phoenicia. The Phoenicians eventually occupied this area. Tyre is one of the most ancient cities in the world, uh, consistently occupied or inhabited. Um, and it was... The largest, uh, historians will tell you, it's the largest port or the most important port uh, on this uh, Mediterranean coast. Uh, so it is the hub. It is the hub through which all the commerce took place, all the trading. And so all of the exchange, it's the marketplace and the money and the power that come about because of that fact, plus the human tendency toward personal sin and selfishness will explain to you why uh, it is a place that draws God's condemnation. Ezekiel talks more about Tyre uh, than any of the other prophets, and it's a sort of a mysterious place to us because it belongs, and Sidon is not on this map, but it's up here a little bit further north on the same coast. The two, the two cities, Tyre and Sidon, are synonymous with man's wickedness and his pride in the Scriptures. And in fact, we have one of the two revelations in the prophets to uh, they tell us about Satan and his, his history, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Both of, or one of these is actually speaking to the king of Tyre. But we believe that, the, uh, that God knows, and through Isaiah, um, no, through uh, Ezekiel, um, we're being told uh, by the Spirit of God that Satan is the power behind this human ruler, and Satan, one of his great modus operandi throughout the scriptures is that he possesses earthly creatures, the serpent in the garden, the man of sin at the end in the book of Revelation, the tribulation, and apparently the king of Babylon, king of Tyre. And so um, the Bible says a little bit uh, about the, this place, and, um, and the Sidonians are, uh, are, are super wicked. They're Canaanites in their practices. They worship the same idols in the same system as the Canaanites, and um, the reason for Solomon's downfall, in part, was he took wives from Sidonians, Tyrian and Sidonian wives, and they got him to become an idolater, a pagan worshiper of their gods. And uh, this is the reason why the house of David lost 10 of the 12 tribes. And the, the most horrific thing in the story of David, perhaps, is that of, of all the horrible things in David's life, that his son Solomon, the crown prince, the, the recipient of all of David's uh, instruction and training as we read in Proverbs, the one that wrote Proverbs, the one that wrote Ecclesiastes, the one that gave us the Song of Solomon, the greatest, wisest person in human history by God's direct infusion of, of wisdom, became a horrific fool worshiping false gods. 
despite the fact that God personally had appeared to him twice. And, uh, and the, so the Bible has a, a record of the, the people of Tyre, the people of Sidon. And uh, this judgment God brings is to them. And I want you to hear the concept here. We're going to start talking about ships of Tarshish or Tarshish. That's over here. What's, uh, what continent is this over here? Europe. That's Europe. And southern Europe, this little uh, l- large peninsula is the... It's Spain. And there's a place in Spain here on the southern um, coast that most archaeologists would say, they're Bible-believing, they'd say that's the Tarshish of Tyre with its trade route going all the way across the Mediterranean Sea to Tarshish. The the ships of Tarshish aren't the ones that were made there. They're the the ones that can get there and back. It's high-tech in their day to be able to make this sail and bring this kind, and, and all the places in between with all the riches and all the things that can be traded for, all the exotic goods and things that you can get. If you go farther and farther, you can get things that are more and more different. And that's, people, people, people want variety, and they're interested, and so they'll pay more for something different. And you can see how this trade, the bigger the trade is, the farther flung it, it gets in the Bible, the more wealthy the person is that's involved in it. And so this is actually an oracle in God's Word against the arrogance and... Um, and self-importance of the wealth of Tyre. I'll read it to you, and then we'll work it a little bit. And it's Actually, let me show you Motyer's outline, because I think he's got it. I think he does a better job than I did with it, and that's okay. He's a Hebrew scholar, and I'm, I'm, I'm but a pastor. <laughs> but I'll work it in Hebrew. Uh, this is how uh, Alec, J. Alec Motyer put it together. He's got the best commentary on um, on Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, in the English language. And I don't know of a better one in another language. But um, the way he puts this oracle together, it's, notice, you start with a lament. Wail, O ships of Tarshish. The people over in Spain, those ships that are going back and forth, because your port is destroyed. And that's Tyre. And it ends with a lament. Wail, O ships of Tarshish. Exact same language, because your fortress is destroyed. So that's called an inclusio. In literature, we say, especially in like a poem or something, these are the frame pieces that the rest of it fits into. These are the sandwich cookie pieces that you put the, the Oreo stuff in in the middle. And the poem is in between these two things. And so the, the next four verses, verses 15 through 18, are related and they're kind of an appendix or an addendum to this poem, um, we would contend. Then I want you to see something pretty cool that Motyer picked up, and I think he's right about this. In verses 2 through uh, 7, you have a chunk. He's calling it B, the downfall of Tyre and Sidon. And in verses 8 through 13, you have how this is going to happen. The agencies, the people, the the agents that will bring this about. Um, And then I want you to notice B1, 2, and 3, C1, 2, 3. Verses 2 and 3 are about Tyre. Verses 4 and 5 are about Sidon. And verses 6 and 7 seem to be about Tyre. So he's talking about the re- this area. It's like Philistia, the five cities. Tyre and Sidon are often synonymously presented. That's the twin cities. Okay? Dallas and Fort Worth. Right? Um, so here, Tyre, Sidon, Tyre. He does it twice in verses um, 8 through 13. And so that seems to be a pretty tight presentation of the structure. And this is the kind of thing Isaiah's doing. He's not just saying words that make sentences so that you can have ideas. 
He is doing that, but he's doing that in a pretty arrangement. Isaiah is as much, um, as much a, a content generator of propositions. He's as much that as he is an artist. And that's how poetry works, and it's Hebrew poetry. And um, what are you supposed to do with that? You're supposed to choose to like it. That's our response to God's aesthetics. And this is the, the beautiful symmetrical arrangement. I'll leave that up as we read it. The oracle concerning Tyre. Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is destroyed. Without house or harbor, it is reported to them from the land of Cyprus. Be silent, you inhabitants of the coastland, the merchants of Sidon, your messengers cross the sea, were on many waters, the grain of the Nile, the harvest of the river was her revenue. She was the marker, market of the nations. Be ashamed, O Sidon, for the sea speaks, the stronghold of the sea, saying, I've neither travailed nor given birth, I've neither brought up men, young men nor reared virgins. When the report reaches Egypt, they will be in anguish at the report of Tyre. Pass over to Tarshish, wail, O inhabitants of the coastland. Is this your jubilant city whose origin is from antiquity, whose feet used to carry her to colonize distant places? Who has planned this against Tyre, the bestower of crowns, whose merchants were princes, whose traders were the honor of the earth? The Lord of hosts has planned it to defile the pride of all beauty, despise all the honor of the earth. Overflow your land like the Nile, O daughter of Tarshish, there's no more restraint. He has stretched out his hand over the sea. He's made the kingdoms tremble. The Lord has given a command concerning Canaan to demolish the strongholds. He said, you shall exult no more, O crushed virgin daughter Sidon. Arise, pass over to Cyprus. Even there you'll find no rest. Behold, the land of the Chaldeans. This is the people which was not. Assyria appointed it for desert creatures. They erected their siege towers. They stripped its palaces. They made it a ruin. Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for your stronghold is destroyed. Now, we have read it. We've seen an outline proposing the structure. And if this is right, if he's right that you've got the inclusio and the tire side and tire, tire side and tire in, the, in the, the verses in between, if that's what he's doing, if that's what Isaiah is doing in his arrangement, then he thought about this for a while before he, um, before he just came out and said, okay, I've got a song for everybody. There's a lot of, of intentionality. Now let's work it in its verse-by-verse verse detail. The oracle on Sor. This is the word in Hebrew for Tyre. T-S-O-R. Sadi is the, the consonant T-S. And there's no Y. Uh, there is no U. There is just Sor. That's the name of the place. If uh, they were there and you would talk to them, they would say, yeah, God has a problem with Sor. Why we call it Tyre is history. It's an interesting thing, but we'll call it Tyre. That's what the English translation is. I'd rather you call me David than David, or Dawid, even though that's how people alternately pronounce my name in Hebrew. David, I'm, Eng I'm an English speaker. That, it'd be better to call me that. And uh, I'll try to do that to you as well, unless we're joking around. The oracle on Tyre. Whale, I got to tell you, that's Helilu. Whale, ships of Tarshish. Helilu, that is a command, and it is an onomatopoeia. It's the kind of word that sounds like what it is. Hey, Lilu is telling them, hey, Lil is to wail, halal, in this uh, form. And it's an imperative. And the structure of the passage is the series of imperatives God gives. You'll hear it all through. Wail, ships of Tarshish. 
Why are the ships of Tarshish whaling? Because their entire trade, they've got these very expensive vessels that are going back and forth and across the Mediterranean and making all this money and all this trade, and that's a good thing. Trade, you can read about that in Proverbs 31. The Proverbs 31 woman, her ships are going far away to bring back very interesting things for the family, and she's, she's good at business. This is, a, this is a way you do business back then, and it's not wrong to do business. It's wrong to worship it. And so whale for O ships of Tarshish because your entire system is destroyed. It's like if, um, if we sent up a, um, a, a ship or a, a rocket up to the space station and then um, the earth was destroyed and they're stuck up there. Well, what do we do now? Well, something for just a few days or, or months or whatever because everybody's about to die. And so you're, you're dead in the water, pun intended, ships of Tarshish if you lose Tyre. For it is destroyed from house to harbor. From the, from the land of Kittim, that's Cyprus in Hebrew, it's Kittim, it is reported to them. So back to our little map in the Med. Uh, what? I can't see it. Cyprus is in the Mediterranean, <laughs> okay? And it's an island where the, where the ships will pause. They'll pause for trade. It's along the way, and the message of the destruction of Tyre comes to these ships while they're en on, on route, while they're, they're um, in, at sea. And so when he says they heard it, they heard the message from Cyprus, um, that's saying that uh, it's, a, it's a visual for you to say they're in the middle of their, their run, and they hear the destruction that has come upon Tyre. And now to Tyre, be still, one translation of Damam or Howl, and there's and the, the the translators, the, the the Hebrew scholars argue. Does this word mean like wail? So howl is it a, a synonym to wailing, or is it being silent, where you once were boisterous and exultant? But the inhabitants of the coast, their entire inside, and be silent there. The merchants of Sidon, this is how you say Sidon in Hebrew, Sidon. That's another T S word. So Sur and Sidon, Sur and Sidon are the two names, but we'll call it Sidon. The merchants of Sidon. Uh, those who crossed over the sea filled you. You used to be filled by these merchants um, of Sidon, but now you are going to be empty because of the coming destruction. And, as, and in many waters, the seed of Shechor, a harvest of the Nile, was her produce. So this is talking about grain that is grown on, I believe, one of the banks of the Nile, one of the tributaries or one of the, the small rivulets of the Nile is a place where it overflowed consistently and there was an, always enough grain in Shechor to bring um, an extra produce, an extra um, uh, export crop. So remember when Joseph has to, um, to, to rearrange the structure in, in Egypt because there's going to be famine for seven years, but there's seven years of plenty first, and he stores up all the grain? Well, that, the Nile is, is, a, is an interesting thing. Every year it has a flood period, and the flood makes uh, possible the Egyptian economy so that they could grow grain. And so this is the, the part of the grain of the Nile in Egypt that would be exported. So this is a, see, this is a regional crisis if Tyre is destroyed, then where are we going to bring our stuff to market for the people over there um, in the Holy Land and in the Levant and in Mesopotamia and everybody? The, this whole population of millions of people aren't going to be able to buy our grain, and so the Egyptians are going to be in a crunch. It's like this is a piece, this Jenga puzzle, okay? If you pull Tyre out, the whole thing collapses, the whole economic structure collapses, and everybody's wailing and grieving. And you and I have something in common in our time like that. 
I've heard it said that, well, as America declines into socialism, we've seen it already happen with England. They've gone socialist, and so we decline into you know, Euro-socialist you know, state. And my thought about that, it's an interesting thought, but I think that the way England has been able to do that is because of the strength and the allegiance, the alliance between the United States and Great Britain. They've been able to become Euro-socialist states because they are protected by their alliances. And we don't have anything like that to lean on as we decline. Well, it's our turn to try it. And I think if this thing, if this thing collapses, I think they all collapse. That's my extended economic expertise speaking, geopolitics and geoeconomics. In other words, I don't know much about it. I don't think anybody really does. But I do know this, that we are um, the international uh, currency that people use for their reserve, and uh, oil's traded in dollars still. And, um, and I, I think that if, if this economy were to fall, I think the whole world would feel it bad. Excuse me, badly. And so um, I think that that's, at least in that thought experiment of this collapse, if this happened here, what would happen you know, in our trading partners? Well, this is what God says is going to happen to Tyre. They are going to collapse economically, and it is going to hurt Egypt, and it is going to hurt everyone else, and Tarshish is going to be weeping, and everyone's going to be in trouble. All right. Many waters, the seed of Shechor, a harvest of the Nile was her produce. And she was the trading prophet of the nations. She was the trading prophet, not the marketplace. She was the prophet. The fact that Tyre existed meant that everybody had a way to get rich because it's a clearinghouse, because it's the port where you can, you can bring all the stuff in the Mediterranean to market to, the, to Mesopotamia. And if that shuts down, if that node is destroyed, we have no way to do it. Think of the internet. Think of the the communicate, well, let's go back before the internet to the phone system. Think about trying to call someone if the lines get cut. If there's a, if there's a power outage at the power plant, whatever is between uh, the power generation and me, if there's a power node that goes down, I don't get any power. And that's the idea, is this node that everyone depends on for their uh, economic uh, profit is gone. She was the trading prophet. And uh, the, again, the scholars will argue about this word um, for whether it should be translated the marketplace of the nations or the prophet that you get from the marketplace. And uh, Matyar, and I think he's right, it's the other, it's the latter, it's the prophet of the nations. They didn't have any way. Market's great, but what's it for? It's for money. It's to make money at the market. And there is no profit because the marketplace gets shut down. And now to Sidon, be ashamed. So you don't see we switch over from Tyre to Sidon. I'll show you that outline real quick. You have Tyre in verses 2 and 3, and then Sidon in verses 4 and 5. And he does this, Isaiah does this, and, and Matyar is clever for, for identifying it. Be ashamed, Boshi. It's an, infinitive, or it's an imperative, second person command, be ashamed. Be ashamed, Sidon. So they're proud because they're wealthy and they're too big to fail. And God says, you should be ashamed. Why? For the sea has spoken the stronghold of the sea. What does this mean, the sea has spoken the stronghold of the sea? He's talking about the same thing twice. The sea, comma, which is your stronghold, is the lane on which we travel in order to make the economy work. The Mediterranean trade with these ships of Tarshish is how we are enriching uh, the entire enterprise of the marketplace of Tyre and Sidon. 
And the C being your stronghold is your system that enables you to say we're too big to fail. It's a stronghold because we can make a buck if we can get our ships out to, uh, to port and back out to the other coastlands and come back. And so it's a stronghold because it's the basis for their economic uh, vigor. And we have a certain lifestyle, a certain expectation, and it has been this way for generations. I forget which, um, which historian of, of antiquity said that there have been people living in Tyre as a port city to uh, open goods from the Mediterranean to, out to Mesopotamia and the Fertile Crescent and all that. That's been going on since 1900 B.C. It's one of the oldest places in the world because of this uh, capacity, one of the oldest consistently inhabited cities. And back then, that's before the Phoenicians, right? This is just a very ancient place, and it's always been wealthy, and it's too big to fail. And God's like, get ready. It's going to fail. The stronghold of the sea isn't going to help you. And what does the sea say about Tyre and Sidon, and why is there shame? The sea says, I have not labored or travailed, and I have not begotten or given birth. Men often yalad, and so it can't mean to physically give birth. It means to beget a child, and it's a euphemism at times for how babies are born. But um, I have not travailed, I have not begotten a child. I have not brought up, raised up young men, nor reared virgin daughters. What does this mean? The jewel of the sea, the jewel of the Mediterranean, the, the precious place that the Mediterranean has given birth to and enriched is Tyre and Sidon, these cities, these port cities of, of great uh, uh, international market. This is, this is the New York Stock Exchange. This is Wall Street. This is the, the child of is the one that has been brought to existence by the sea. That means he's talking when he says the virgin daughter or the son, he's talking about Tyre and Sidon as the cities that would be the product of the commerce on the, on the water. But he's a poet, so he calls them by, I haven't had daughters, I haven't raised sons. So what? So this ancient place is about to be rendered as though it never existed. And the sea is going to say, well, I don't have anything. I don't have anybody there. And you're looking at skyscrapers. You're looking at uh, powerful commerce. There are layers and layers of concrete. There's noisy, boisterous city life. There is all the things that happen in cities because of all the trade and all the money that comes into cities through this trade. And you're looking at this. You're looking at Manhattan or whatever and saying, this, this is just going to keep going as it always is. And God's saying, there's coming a time when the ocean will say, there's never anything here. I don't have, I don't, what are you talking about? There's nothing. And so that's a shame. And it is the Ecclesiastes dilemma. It's the problem that Solomon points out as Ecclesiastes opens, that everything's meaningless because it's temporary, it's transitory, it's going away. And you and I see concrete and asphalt and skyscrapers and electricity, and we say, too big to fail. We say, wow, that's going to go on for a long time. And God says, it's all a vapor. And no one's going to remember who laid the foundation of the city, and nobody's going to care and it's going to be a waste, and it's going to be abandoned, and, and uh, time does that to everything. And he's not saying that just about time here, but it does apply to pretty much every city and every work of mankind. And that's why Solomon in Ecclesiastes says, I've tried it all. I've, done, I've planted gardens and forests. I've built cities. 
I've done things that you can't imagine. I've, tried, I've, I've done everything under the sun, and I can conclude this. Meaningless, meaningless. Is everything is meaningless, meaning a vapor, meaning it's passing away, meaning it doesn't last. Because it's life under the sun, which has no value, and it's transitoriness. But if you go beyond the sun to the one who made it, and you live your life to please him, recognizing that his thinking about your life's temporal works matter, they take on eternal significance because the eternal God is having an opinion. So now we're living according to design, and it isn't meaningless. And that's the riddle of Ecclesiastes. Well, these people have no idea of the creator, except that they've rejected him. They had uh, close contact with the people of the Creator because Hiram of Tyre was one of the great contributors to Solomon's building projects. And he made alliances with the house of David through the, uh, the giving of daughters for Solomon and, and wives for Solomon to marry. And uh, those Sidonians and Tyrian wives turned Solomon away from his Creator to worship the false gods of the Tyrians and Sidonians, the, the Baals or the Canaanites. And it's... Um, it's been interesting how these people are so close to the Judahites, and yet they don't benefit from the association. Anyway, God is going to, in this poetic statement, that the sea, not God, but the sea is going to say, I don't have anybody there. What, what, there's no, uh, no offspring from my efforts to build cities. In other words, it's a shame that it's going to be disappearing. In verse 5, Sidon is going to be like Tyre. When news reaches Egypt... So when the Shema, the, the, the news, the information goes to Egypt, when news goes to Egypt, they will wail like they did at the news of Tyre. So the Egyptians are wailing because of the loss of Tyre. They're going to be wailing at the loss of, of Sidon. I believe that's a better rendering because you have a comparative like when they, with the news of Sore of Tyre. When, they get, when this information goes to Egypt... So now you have another command in, verses six, uh, in verse 6, a command to escape. He says, avar, the word to go over, to cross over, where we get the word for Passover. And he says it in the imperative, y'all, cross over to Tarshish. Just get on your ships and go, because there's not going to be anything left there. Well, there's no reason to go to Tarshish, because their entire uh, economy depends on the trade with Tyre. And so there, there's, there's no... There's, but, but go, hey, go over, cross over to Tarshish. Wail, you who reside on the coast. What do you think that word is? Hey, Lilu. <laughs> Another command to wail. You who reside on the coast. And then we have the questions. So looking at our outline briefly, you have verse 6, the, 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 the challenge for Tyre to evacuate to, to Tarshish. And then there is going to become this question, a, a, a lament, or even a taunt in verse 7, asking, is this who I think it is? Is this Tyre? And we're in verse 7. He says, is this your exultant one? Is this the one that exalts you Tyrians, you people of the coastland? This, and that's why the translators say, is this the exultant city or the boisterous city? Because it's wiped out, it's gone. Is this the exultant one? From days of antiquity is her ancientness or her antiquity. And that's because he says, from days of her Kedem is her Kedem ta, is her Kedem. So from eternity is her eternity, from, from antiquity is her ancientness or antiquity. That's what that is. I wanted you to hear it in um, rough 
literalistic English in, the, in my Bible it says whose origin is from antiquity. That's fine. I mean, that's, that's the paraphrase that brings it into English. But it says, from the days of antiquity is her antiquity. So meaning it's a very ancient place. It's a Hebrew idiom. From days of antiquity is her, is her origin. Her feet brought her from a distant place to reside. Her feet brought her, and this is where I differ with the, uh, this translation here, um, whose feet used to carry her to colonize distant places. Uh, to colonize, that's very paraphrastic. It's a paraphrase. Whose feet brought her from a distant place to reside, to go and sojourn in foreign places. And it's the word to sojourn, to gore, to gavar, to, to, to reside in a foreign place. So they've colonized, in other words, and they have colonized throughout the Mediterranean. And one of the colonies perhaps is Tarshish. And you can see how this would work. You have a base of operations where there is a place to get through the Fertile Crescent up into Mesopotamia to to deliver the, the grain or the, or the flax or whatever you've grown, whatever you've brought as trade goods, all through this massive region full of people. And so if you have a port and you have ships, now you can go out and start making trading posts that would um, be places to bring the goods to load them on the ships. And so it's possible, we don't know, Tarshish may have been it's such a colony. It is true in this passage that Tarshish is under the thumb of Tyre. Of Tyre. Tarshish is constrained or restrained by what Tyre wants. So in the trade federation that is apparently headquartered in Tyre, they control, they have all these ports and colonies under their thumb. And we're going to hear Tarshish say, yeah, I can be free for, uh, for a minute because of the destruction of Tyre. Her feet brought her from a distant place to reside, or she colonized the Mediterranean. And now, who planned this destruction upon Tyre, the crowned one, or the one who crowns? A challenging uh, word to translate, the one who makes others crowned or the one who wears a crown? And so, either way works. The one who crowns the king is in authority over the king. The one wearing the crown is the king. The point is that they're the ones entire who have all the authority have all the power so who is above the chain of command in this trade federation with tyre and sidon at the top who is higher than that to plan this destruction who has the who's got don't you know who we are we're tyre you're not going to come and destroy us We've got the money to pay off the armies, to do whatever we want to do. Nobody messes with this system. I mean, there may be wars and regional conflicts throughout the world, but nobody's messing with the dollar. They, it's too important. It's too big to fail. That's the idea. You crowned ones. The crowned one. Whose merchants were princes, who, her traders, the honored of the earth. And that's really important because it's in contrast to the one who gets the honor from his creation. This is a major theme in Isaiah. We've told it a million times. Any one of you, get up and tell it, right? What is God bringing his wrath against? Anything that is exalted in its glory or arrogance against him. And what is he exalting? That's, that's what he's slamming down. He's playing whack-a-mole, right? And what is he exalting? All the low places, the lowly of the earth who are humbling themselves before him. And that is the theme of Isaiah. And it's a major theme in the entire scriptures. And where would you go in the Bible to see the most important example of this? Wednesday night, Bible trivia time. Where would you and I go in the Bible to see the most important example 
of humbling oneself to the point of maximum exaltation in God's design. Do you think it's in Philippians? Right about chapter 2, verse 5. Have this thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although existed in the very essence or morphe of God, didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by becoming obedient to the point of, let me paraphrase, the death of the cross. He humbled himself under the hand of God all the way in his incarnation to the point of the death of the cross. And what does it say in Philippians 2.9? What does it say? For this reason of his humbling... He was also highly exalted. And he was given a name above every name. So that the name of Jesus, that's the humanity of Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is, I'm paraphrasing, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And he says, this is supposed to be your attitude. So then, brethren, as you've obeyed in my absence, not, not in my absence only, but now much, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, what's the command? Come on now, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for God is the one working in you both to will and to work for his pleasure. See, that's one consistent thought with Jesus as the centerpiece. You and I in verse 5 are supposed to think this in ourselves, which was in Christ, and then go through the pattern of Christ, which humbles ourselves before God, all the way as necessary to whatever plan God has for us, in Jesus' case, to the death of the cross. And for this reason also, he was highly exalted. And how do you get exaltation? How do you get promotion? How do you get to be the wealthy person that you want to be? And let me, let me say it that way. We're such Americans. We're so Tyrian. We're so uh, consumed with economics, but I think all people are. How do you get real wealth? Where does it come from? It is not in American currency. They cannot print it and give it to you to buy votes. They can't inflate this currency that I'm talking about, real wealth. That's all fodder. It's all, it's all kindling. It's all going to get burned up. All right? And I know you probably understand that the currency isn't really worth that much. Anyway, it's just fiat, whatever they can, can make us think it's worth. Where is the real wealth? Rosen boys, where is the real wealth? Where does it come from? It has to last forever or it's not wealth. I'm going to trade my time and my life for some currency, for some wealth, for some value. What can I turn lifetime, moments, seconds, hours, days, what can I trade the most valuable thing I have, which is time, into actual gold, silver, precious stones currency that lasts forever? Jesus said that you have to store up your treasures in heaven where moth and rust can't destroy and thieves can't break in and steal. That's the real wealth. And it is in those terms of value. What am I doing with the most valuable thing I have, which is time, and how am I using that to parlay that into something of eternal value? It only exists in God's appraisal. It only The, the value of my time, my resource, my effort, my energy, whatever I bring, the only way it becomes evaluated with any kind of lasting value is the one who is eternal applies eternal value to it in his personal assessment. And that's the judgment seat of Christ. And so, see, the, the problem isn't wealth. The problem is that we don't know what wealth is. The health and wealth gospel that after the flesh in this world, you can get rich if you're, if you're pleasing God. So God wants to bless you and enrich you to prove that he's there or something. That's a satanic distraction from what Jesus says in Matthew 6, that you want to store up your treasures, and he does want you to have treasure, but he wants you to store up heavenly treasure, and that's in terms of his regard. The honor to the earth are, are a proverb. They're for God to show 
eternally to anybody who has the wisdom to look at it that real wealth is not after the flesh and it's not the honor of the earth because they're just doing what they're doing at God's pleasure, but they're doing it in rejection of him. Who planned this upon Tyre? We're the Tyrians. You're not going to tell us. We're going to tell you. God's not struggling with this. He's, you know, it's, it's like Ant Hill versus uh, grown-up time. He's looking down at that, and they're squeaking all their glory. Squeak, squeak, squeak. It's us. We're the Tyrians. And God's like, this really isn't, uh, isn't glorious to me. It's, it's tragic and absurd, but it should be God's glory. It should bear his image and honor him, but it doesn't. Yahweh Sabaoth planned it. Who planned this against Tyre in verse 8? Verse 9, the center of the poem. God did. Yahweh of the armies. yod heh vav heh the sacred name of God, the covenant-keeping creator, the one who self-exists. He doesn't exist because someone makes it so, we do. He exists just because that's the nature of his very being. The concept of being itself comes from his person. He's always been there and he always will be there. And the material universe was something God created. We read in Genesis 1. But before Genesis 1, there was him. He was there and he was. He was. In the beginning, God was. And, and so that's, I think, why he calls himself Yahweh. Yahweh of the Savah. But it's not Savah just of the multitude. Savah, multitude. It's the multitudes, it's plural. Yahweh of the, of the many, manys. And again, I've told you many times, I think the word Savah here for many or multitude means a military array. It's a multitude of soldiers. And so it's the Lord of the armies. So it sounds here like Tyre's pretty tough. The more I think about it, the more it sounds like a mafia movie. They've got all the wealth, they've got all the power, and who are you to tell us? We tell you we've got the money. And God says, you don't really have the kind of money, you don't have the kind of power that I'm bringing. Yahweh of the armies planned it. To defile the pride of, of all splendor or beauty. I think my Bible translates that word beauty uh, in verse 9. To, to, dis, to, to despise all the honor of the earth. How about to, to bring low, to defile? That glory, that self-glorification, we are tired with our crown. God's not impressed, and he's going to put them in their place. And this is a simple thing you see again and again and again. It's such a major theme in the Bible. What does David say when Saul dies? What is his great lament psalm? Do you know what he says? Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Saul was absolutely beautiful. He was a specimen he was the guy in the, in the room that if you looked at it, if you could get behind the baggage and see where he was hiding, which is how he <laughs> kind of came up with the, when, he drew, when he drew the, the lot to be the king. He was the guy that were like, well, of course, that is a king if we've ever seen one. I mean, is his foot 12 inches? That's a ruler, okay? <laughs> that's the one. That, that's, that's the king. That's the one that we, could, that we would imagine. And he was somebody that everyone would look to. But uh, this is such a big deal in the Bible. If you exalt yourself in contrast or in rejection or in independence even of God, this is just rank, ridiculous, vile, and we feel like it all the time, but it's arrogance. It's the great folly. And this is what God's going to do. He planned it to defile the pride of all beauty, of all splendor, to humble all the honored of the earth. He's going to bring them down. He's going to humble them. How long, O oh Lord? Well, just wait. Now, two things I want to say by way of application here, 
as we kind of go in, in stride here. Two things. First, um, do you want to be the one that is already humble so God will exalt? Or do you want to be the one that's trying to build your own glory for yourself so that God has to smack you down? Which one do you want? You know, a lot of Christians want to treat their lives like an, like a, like an experiment to see if this is really true. What do you gain if you're wrong? You get the smackdown. What do you gain if you're right? Nothing. Because it's all a vapor, because it's all vanishing. And the question is, what are your values? What is your scale of values? What do you think is valuable? Right? First thing is, do you want to be the humble or the arrogant? And obviously, I want to be the humble. Next question, next thing is, how can I be that? How can I be in the category that God isn't bringing his corrective humbling to? How do I do that? Well, I'll tell you how you don't. You don't do it because you feel like it. I woke up this morning feeling super humble. Lucky for you, God, I'm going to humble myself today. It's not how it works. I believe with all my heart, it starts with a conviction, a faith move, that I believe this is how it is. I believe God is, and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him in Hebrews eleven six, It starts with faith. I believe in my creator. And I believe without feeling like there's a creator or feeling like he wants me to humble myself or feeling, 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 I believe these things. And they become my convictions. And so because I think this is how it is, I'm going to ask God in my personal relationship with him, Father, help me with these things that you've instructed. You've told me again and again and again to humble myself under the mighty hand of God so that you will promote me at the proper time. So God, would you help me with Proverbs, or sorry, with, with 1 Peter 5, 6, because I want to be exalted. I want you to glorify yourself through me. I want what you want to give me. And I have to confess at times I don't feel like it. I don't feel like it a lot. I want to, but I don't, I, I don't, I just, I don't feel this way. Well, if you're driven by your feelings, there's a word for you in Philippians 3. It is the men in Philippians 3 that Paul says that through tears, that they are enemies of the cross, whose glory is their shame, whose God is their stomach, who set their minds on earthly things. I don't want to be like that. How do you avoid that? Well, you can't say that what I feel like or what I want is, is all that matters. That's your God is your appetite. Right? You have to commit to these things. You have to choose these things. You have to think in these terms. And then ask God to help you with a little integrity because I choose this, I commit to this, I don't feel like it. Well, God, help me because I'm going to move forward. And I think just like the little choo-choo train that could, if in the front pulling the thing is my convictions and my choices and my beliefs, then somewhere behind, that, those feelings are going to follow. I think that's how we're made. You ever, uh, you ever get in the habit of exercise? Some of you have. All of us have probably at some point. We get in the habit of doing something that's good for us. There's a little inertia to getting into that habit. In my case, sometimes a lot of inertia in getting into that habit. I don't want to. I don't feel like it. Until I'm there, until I've had the benefit of it, and then I'm glad I did. 
because I made a choice, because I had a goal, because I, I, I disregarded how I felt, and I went for what I wanted because I thought it through and I had a value. It's how you budget. It's how you do anything worth doing. There's a little bit of discipline. If you're struggling with that, ask God about it. But you definitely don't want to be on the wrong side of the Lord of the armies because of arrogance. He's going to humble all the so-called honored of the earth. Pass over your land like the Nile. This is another command for escape. O daughter of Tarshish, there's no more restraint. Now what's going on here? The people of Tarshish used to be under the power of the Tyrians. They have the control. The, 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 the family running Tyre kind of has colonized, and they're running Tarshish. And if Tyre's power is broken, the people of Tarshish are no longer under restraint. We don't have to pay our taxes to them. We don't have to pay protection money or whatever it is. We can be more free. We can be restrained, even like you would pass over the land like the Nile. And we've heard this, for, this word pass over quite a bit, but it's used in a different way here. Not, not of an evacuation, but of freedom for the people of, of Tarshish. Still what God is doing, His hand, Yado, His hand, has stretched out upon the sea, which is the lane and the, the, the basis for their power. He has made to tremble the kingdoms. Yahweh has commanded concerning Canaan to destroy her strongholds. So God is going to do this. He's going to bring this destruction. And, and now we're face to face with where the real power, where the real value, where the real wealth is. What is money? What is wealth? Wealth is the capacity to do the things that you want to do. And I said to do. And doing requires energy or power to do something. Anything you do requires power. So money is a form, is a method, a means of having power to do things. Try to go to war without money. Of course, we know the big problem with warfare. Besides, it kills people. The, the big challenge to it is having enough money to afford it. It's always been the big problem, right? Power to do. That's all money is. Power to do. These people can do nothing against the Creator. They are helpless before Him. And so are we. So do you want money? Or do you want wealth? Do you want this world? Or do you want the things of God? It's a constant challenge to us when you see God's you know, back in this day when Isaiah is saying this, okay, when these people are in their power structure and, they're, and they're, they're this massive economic, too big to fail thing, can you imagine? Just try to imagine. These are unthinkable things that Tyre's going to fall and the Mediterranean trade is going to be just upside down. But that's what he's predicting. That's what Isaiah is calling for. And Yahweh said, do not exult any longer, crushed virgin daughter of Sidon. To Cyprus, arise, cross over, go hide in one of your um, ports. Even there, no rest will be for you. So you're not going to have rest. You can try it. Go, run away, evacuate, but you won't get any rest. Now, why not? Well, because if you break Tyre, then you're breaking Cyrus, you're breaking Cyprus, you're breaking Egypt, you're breaking Tarshish. And so they're going to be subsistence wherever they go because of the economic collapse. This is, a, this is a prophecy in the Bible of economic collapse. Behold, now we have who's going to do it. Behold the land of the Chaldeans. That's Babylon, 
Okay, the Kazdim are, uh, are from, the, from the middle of the, the Mesopotamian region, and this is before they become ascendant 100 years later. This is when they're a subordinate people that Assyria uh, keeps in check. Behold the land of the Kazdim in Hebrew, Kazdim, but it's Chaldeans um, in English. This is the people which is not. What that means is that they have no significance in the power structures of the world, they can't do anything because the Assyrians hold them under their thumb. Assyria appointed her for desert creatures who, this, the land of the Chaldeans. These people are going to be the inhabitants of the, the desert creatures. They erected their siege towers. Who did the Assyrians against the Chaldeans? They stripped her palaces. He appointed it a ruin. And this is interesting. It turns a third-person masculine verb. He appointed it a ruin, which it was they, they, and then he. Whale ships of Tarshish for your fortress is destroyed. So this, verse 13, what is this? What's going on here with Chaldea and the Assyrians have power? And they, this is a, um, in, in the movie, um, the, 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 the lictor, the guy with the axe at the execution, um, or the, the, the sword, he's got a sword, right? He pulls the sword out, and it's Assyria, and that's the executioner. And we, the observers, are like, well, that's really a menacing figure. And then the camera zooms in on his sword, and we say, whoa, that's got a, rick, a really rugged-looking edge on it. It's glinting in the sun. I don't want that to hit me. And then there's a watermelon sitting there, and the, the lictor just flicks his wrist and chops the watermelon in half with his sword. And you're like, whoa, it's really sharp. And he, he brandishes and he shows you what it does before he then comes and does his executioner's duty. I think that's what verse 13 is is that the Assyrians are the instrument that God's going to use. And he did. But he's showing you that even the Chaldeans can't fight the Assyrians. Now later that changes with Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's father, and then the crown prince Nebuchadnezzar, and the battle of Carchemish, and how the, uh, the Babylonians become ascendant for a while. And, um, but in this phase, in the 700s, or, you know, early, um, I mean the, the late 700s, like around 701, uh, when Isaiah's dealing with the Assyrians, um, they are the instrument that God uses. Is God defiled in any way by using these wicked instruments? We've said again and again, it's a major theme of the Old Testament. He brings military conquest and destruction using these Gentile pagan kingdoms. It doesn't defile him in the least to let them do what they want to do and to set them up to do it. He is not the author of sin, and he doesn't... Uh, turn a blind eye to the wickedness of the Chaldeans or the Assyrians or the Americans or anyone else. All the Gentile powers of the earth, God is watching and he's long-suffering, but eventually he's had enough. And Jonah comes to the Ninevites, the capital of Assyria, and says, y'all are going to die in 40 days. And they repent. And it's a Gentile kingdom that a Hebrew prophet goes and speaks to. And I would say that if we want to parallel in history for America, for any Gentile country, I'd say go to how God deals with the Gentiles like Tyre like Sidon, like the other Gentile countries, because that's what we are. In the church age, an international work, an international work where God is bringing uh, one person, one man in Christ out of Jew and Gentile to be the body of Christ and the bride of Christ, which rule with Christ in his coming kingdom. An international project. So what are the nations? They still exist. What are they? We're Gentile nations. And what are we supposed to do about that? We're supposed to be salt and light where we are. 
We're supposed to humble ourselves before God and be about his work. Because we're surrounded by people that don't feel like doing that, and they don't do that, and they're not going to break themselves down before their Creator and see their need and trust in Christ as their Savior because of their sin in contrast to God's perfect righteousness and their desperate need for His righteousness imputed to them. They're not going to go there. But some are. You and I are called to represent Jesus Christ in humility before Him with a message of the truth in love. Father, we don't want to be Tyrians. We don't want to be uh, exalted in our arrogance against your glory so that you have to slap us down and show us humility. But Father, inasmuch as we need humility, we do ask for it. We ask you to train us. Father, uh, there are uh, um, people with us who are wondering if these things are so. They're wondering if you're there. They're wondering people in our lives, around us, possibly even hearing these words tonight, that don't know if you're really there or if you really have a plan. Father, it's so real to us as their spirit opens these things to our hearts. It's so real to us that you do have a plan and you are working and you are interested and you've chosen by your sovereign plan to work with us in this sort of indirect way where we have to hear your word from these prophets and the Holy Spirit inspired them and he illuminates these things to our hearts and But we're coming very quickly upon direct encounter with you, a direct face-to-face with you that that we'll never lose. For our loved ones around us, Father, that are wondering if these things are so, I ask that you'd make it real to them in the cases where they need to hear the gospel. Father, send a preacher to our loved ones. In the case of our family and friends that know you or have trusted in Christ as their Savior but are walking after the world, after the flesh, Father, I ask that you get a hold of them and remind them they have a Heavenly Father. I know that that is in the book of Hebrews. Um, it's at times, through discipline, we know we have a Father. But Father, the alternative to us seems unthinkable. They would go through life without a Father. And so thank you that we have you as our Heavenly Father for keeping us humble. And we ask that we uh, take on the character of your Son as we avail ourselves of your word going forward. And we pray in Jesus' name. We all said.